This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 102, recorded on Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, Tim Pryde from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University, the Ohio State University, now trademarked. Uh, And I'm here along with my co-host, Brenda Weigel. Welcome, Brenda. Hello, Tim, and hi, everyone. And we have a, a repeat guest with us today who probably needs no introduction for the vast majority, if not all of our audience, Doug Hawkins. Welcome, Doug. Happy to be here. I, I guess I, I don't know where I was in between one and 102, but somewhere before. Yeah, I know you were at 80. I think you might have been <laughs> on one before that, too. And that okay. was two years ago, the most mm-hmm. that one um, most recently. And we talked about the vision for COG. I think you had been relatively newly minted as the chair of the Children's Oncology Group at that time after having served as the disease committee chair for soft tissue sarcomas and lots of other million of roles. I, in preparing to introduce you today, I made the mistake of printing your CV. So all 46 pages fit out of my printer, uh, but um, uh, it's very impressive. I'll just summarize briefly for the audience. You received your BS in chemistry from the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Then you graduated from Harvard Medical School and you were awarded the New England Pediatric Society Prize for the Outstanding Graduate in Pediatrics. And then you uh, gave up the East Coast, moved to Seattle, and have been there ever since, getting your training in pediatrics and pediatric hematology oncology there at the University of Washington, affiliated hospitals, and stayed on as a, a faculty member. And you're now a professor of pediatrics there in the Department of Pediatrics and uh, in the Division of, of hematology, oncology, and an investigator at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center. Um, You have, uh, I counted about 235 papers, two of them co-authored with me and nine of them co-authored with Brenda and one pending or submitted with her. So 10 that I could count. And then, um, uh, yeah, so lots of committees, every, you know, all the usual uh, accolades and honors and committees and a lot of impact on the field of pediatric oncology. So thank you for all of your great work over the course of your career so far. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction. So today we wanted to pick your brains about the inequities of childhood cancer outcomes. Uh, We were provided by the team at Solving Kids Cancer, an image from an abstract that was presented at ASCO this year that addressed this issue that came from, from you and the Children's Oncology Group, which showed a, a lower survival amongst those who are in rural areas and those who are uh, in, in poverty. Uh, I think there was 4,417 children that you guys looked at between the years 1992 and 2018, and the survival curves were dramatically different amongst the different groups. And so we really wanted to dig into that a little bit today and talk about um, those data, talk about 
what sort of is the root cause perhaps, and maybe what could be done about it. So could you maybe start by just, if you have more to describe about that study and, and those data and your findings? Yeah, so um, uh, first of all, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm feeling very much out of my comfort zone. But one thing I've uh, realized as the group chair of COG is I have to think about cancer very broadly, not just about narrow areas and sarcoma or places where I'm more familiar, but instead take a look at what's the impact we're having on the population of children with cancer, not individual clinical trials. And it's become very clear through research done by others that uh, we have disparities in outcome that are not explained by biology. And that if we really want to see improvements in outcome and survival and uh, side effects, we need to address these disparities um, that are based on um, social factors, um, not biologic factors. I think the um, the um, abstract that you referred to that was presented at ASCO was actually presented by one of our fellows from Seattle Children's Hospital. It was not using COG data, but he had access to Washington State Re uh, Cancer Registry data. There were over 4,000 children uh, diagnosed with cancer in about a 20-year uh, period of time. And uh, he was able to use these data to look at um, where people live, dichotomizing children either in urban locations or rural locations. And they use census tract data. So this was much more precise than zip codes or other ways in order to characterize whether it was population dense or, or rural. And they also were able to characterize the neighborhoods by poverty, again, using census tract data, which is much more precise than zip code data. And what they found was that when they put all the children together, these are all children treated in the state of Washington uh, for cancer, children who either lived in a rural location or lived in a neighborhood defined by poverty, high levels of, of uh, poverty, their survival rate was significantly lower by you know a 15 or so percent difference in outcome, even though they had the same diseases as the children who lived in urban locations or in, less, uh, in neighborhoods that weren't characterized by poverty. And so this has nothing to do with biology. This has nothing to do with the types of cancer they have. This all has to do with other factors um, social determinants of health that are leading to children who live in those environments having a higher chance of dying from their cancer than children who live in uh, more wealthy uh, neighborhoods or live in an urban environment. Has the COG looked at this in their database yet? So uh, we've looked at it in several different settings, not on a population wide level, uh, like the state of Washington study, but rather individual disease categories. And I think it's been looked at probably um, the, the two most uh, striking examples that have been published, to my knowledge, um, come from examining children with high-risk neuroblastoma. Kira uh, Bona at uh, Dana-Farber has done this in a number, we're using a number of different populations, but they have included uh, children who enrolled on our high-risk neuroblastoma studies and made it all the way through to the immunotherapy phase of, of treatment. So these are perhaps the best population to look at. These are children who had access to a clinical trial. They received the best treatment we know of, including immunotherapy in the more uh, recent era. And even amongst this best acting group of, of children, there are differences in event-free survival and overall survival based on factors like um, household poverty. This was defined by um, insurance status, public versus private insurance status. 
even though they were all treated on clinical trials, even though they had access to the best treatment, the most advanced treatment um, that we know of, there were differences in both event-free survival and overall survival, um, just based on whether they had public or private insurance. And they, you could also look at other populations, looking at neighborhood poverty as defined by zip code, which again, is not as precise as census tract data. So that is really quite striking that a feature just like do you have public or private insurance could lead to differences in outcome. Uh, a similar analysis was uh, published by uh, Sharon Castellino using Hodgkin data from a whole generation of low, intermediate, and high-risk Hodgkin studies um, conducted within the Children's Oncology Group. Hodgkin lymphoma, we think of it as being a very curable disease. In fact, the, when you pooled the analysis, uh, now looking at differences in outcome based on race, institutionally reported race, um, there was no difference in event-free survival, but when you looked at post-relapse survival amongst the minority of children who have Hodgkin disease and develop recurrence, there was a striking difference in outcome based on whether uh, a child was white or Hispanic or uh, African-American. And again, this has nothing to do with biology and probably has much more to do with access to care. So if you look at the, the initial data, it looks okay. But if you look at post-relapse survival, what happens after someone has a recurrence, there's a difference in outcome that is not biologically based. And Doug, if you think about, and I know we have all seen the maps of the US COG sites, and many of our viewers are familiar with the locations of sites. And there are geographical holes if you if you look at that. And I think it, these are striking data and really speak to the fact that we need to address things as a group beyond biology and 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 targeted therapies. It's it becomes an access issue and access to those therapies, but also all the supportive care, et cetera, that comes with that. Uh, how do you see the COG's role in addressing some of this and the opportunities that, um, that COG, the COG network could provide in not only describing the, these issues, but in starting to address them? Um, do you think, have you thought about potentials there? Yeah. So I, I think that's really the next step is how do we describing the problem is not enough. Addressing them uh, is, is more important. I, I think COG is the right network to do this. Um, yes, the sites of COG are scattered around the United States and other countries. Also, there are geographically less population dense areas where there are, there's a paucity of COG sites. But we still estimate that somewhere in the range of 80 to 90 percent of children, particularly those less than 15, are cared for at COG institutions, whether they're part of a study or not. So if anyone is gonna be able to address this on a national basis, it's gonna be COG institutions. We also have some evidence that um, there's equity and access to initial frontline studies within COG. If you look at, there's a recent analysis published in PLOS One um, comparing COG clinical trial enrollments from 2003 or 2004 to 2015 compared to SEER data and seeing whether there are population disparities. Um, at, a, at a very macro level, um, the population that enrolls on frontline COG studies looks very much like the distribution of uh, that we see in different racial and ethnic groups um, based on SEER data. And if you look at other studies like the enrollment in pediatric match, uh, just published a, a few months ago, if you look at the patients who enrolled on pediatric match, an opportunity to get clinical sequencing and, and uh, access to phase one studies with targeted agents at, at recurrence, the population enrolled on pediatric match looks a lot like the demographics of the SEER based on SEER. So I think in terms of access 
at at least at first diagnosis and at least in that one particular study at relapse, we have a we have we're providing reasonable similar access to to children across the country. But what we really lack is um, is that what you kind of alluded to, which is moving past describing the problem and getting at the etiology. You know, when we discover a biologic biomarker, we see a, a protein that's associated with a poor outcome. We try to understand the mechanism. Why does that protein? that mutated protein lead to poor outcome in leukemias or brain tumors or, or sarcomas. And then we develop an intervention that targets that biomarker. And so just describing that poverty or race or um, location is associated with bad outcome, that's not enough. We need to understand the etiology. And, and then we can think about targeted interventions that might address the etiology. I think that that points out what are some of our limitations. Um, and the limitations of the data within COG is we have fairly crude measures of these biomarkers. We have institutionally reported race which is not necessarily what a person might report. We have um, zip codes to try to infer neighborhood poverty. We have um, public insurance versus private insurance to try to understand household poverty. Those are very imprecise ways of describing the biomarker. And I think we probably, if we really want to understand and then also target interventions, we need to know more about this risk factor. And that could involve asking more detailed questions than we ask right now, like what language do you speak at home? Maybe it's language is a barrier. Maybe if people report um, food insecurity or report other features that potentially could be addressed with targeted interventions, we could really understand what these relatively crude biomarkers of race, insurance status, neighborhood poverty, we might be able to actually understand the etiology and lead to an intervention, much like we understand what the, you know, the mutated protein is doing and how we might target that with a specific intervention. Just going to follow up on that is you envision changes to sort of some of the COG supported infrastructure or data collection mechanisms to really get at that being implemented so that we're collecting that data across across the board as something sort of moving forward tagged to any sort of centralized uh, process within COG. So we're doing that right now with selected studies. For instance, our standard risk ALL study has an embedded um, household material hardship aim that is designed to correlate that with neurocognitive changes, as well as trying to understand burden of care in children who receive blenitumab. That's the intervention on the um, standard risk ALL study. Um, we also have embedded uh, household material hardship questionnaires collect more robust data collection that tries to define the exposure, not with these crude measures, but more precisely by um, having uh, patients describe their race and ethnicity, having them describe their insurance status, or having them describe um, what factors they have experienced that may interfere with their ability to get access to care. Um, that's already embedded in our frontline high-risk uh, neuroblastoma study. That's important because that um, that's the study where we saw these great disparities looking at historical data in both EFS and, um, and overall survival, I think that's going to get us much more precise descriptors of what is the mechanism 
of these um, disparities in outcome in different populations. And if it turns out that it's food insecurity is the one that's, for instance, most associated with inferior outcome, then there are targeted interventions one could consider, um, perhaps not at the COG level, but certainly at the um, at the societal or institutional level to address this as, a, as the main uh, driving force for disparities in outcome, for instance. You're, you're mentioning food insecurity makes me wonder if there isn't some biology here as well. Uh, one of the most eye-opening studies that I read over the last, you know, five or ten years, I think, was when I when they said, "Well, checkpoint response to checkpoint inhibitors depends on your microbiome," and mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was shocking to me to think that 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 could influence. So, thinking about food insecurities, I'm wondering if patients in some of these categories might have a little bit different biology or different um, microbiome or different envi micro environment within themselves as a result of either where they live or how they live or, uh, you know, what their challenges are at home or their stress levels and so forth. So that's probably another layer of complexity that's going to be difficult to get to in terms of accurate data collection about, you know, each individual person. What are your thoughts? Well, well you're thinking like a laboratory scientist. You know, you, you make an observation and then you say, well, what's the, what's the cause? You know, there's, you know, mutated protein X. Well, that's not really the cause. It's how it interacts with this, you know, through a network of other signaling pathways. And so if public insurance uh, insurance status is actually a biomarker for food insecurity, which leads to alterations in the microbiome, well, that that's, you know, that's testable. We could, if that's what we really need to zone, zero in, we need to do that. But I think right now, if all we um, collect are institutionally reported race and ethnicity data with no variability, you know, you can't you can't be a mixed race because that's not a possibility in the way we collect the data. If we only collect insurance status, public versus private, we're not going to be able to get at etiology. I think we're going to need to collect more specific information to really understand the um, to understand the etiology of these disparities, and then that will lead to the targeted interventions. And it, there may be a whole cascade of associated factors. And maybe, you know, we will need to look at the microbiome as the the, the final common pathway that leads to this difference in outcome based on insurance status. Do you, do you think um, there uh, is enough in the way of funding support and people with sort of the trained skill set in, in this type of research? Because getting to sort of what Tim was saying is most of us are really good at sort of the basic uh, or translational science, but this really gets into population science and gets into uh, asking questions in a slightly different way. And, um, and are there opportunities to strengthen uh, those resources to really get at the what is really needed to delve into the data to actually then really move into intervention. Well, we need investigators who are not me, people who actually have trained to uh, evaluate these factors, people who understand the science and can design studies the right way. We, I think we do have um, leaders in the field. Um, I've also, I was also struck by how many of the presentations given at ASCO this last year really focus on inequities of outcome. And so uh, even those people who've devoted their careers trying to study new agents or biology or new ways of doing surgery or, or radiation, when faced with these enormous disparities of outcome that would dwarf any intervention that we think about um, in a clinical trial are, are really saying, you know, we need to, we have to support this sort of research. And so I am enthusiastic that there are investigators who said, this is what I want to do. Um, I'm uh, pleased to see that there are young investigators who say this is what they want to devote their career to. I think we just need to make sure that we are 
um, able to conduct clinical trials that we have, they are able to get uh, the funding they need to ask these sort of questions and address these these uh, these issues. Because describing the problem is not going to be good enough. If we just describe BCRA able and stop there, you know that was that wasn't acceptable. We had to go beyond understand the mechanism and uh, develop an intervention. Well, and it also I think could have worldwide impact, right? We always say twenty percent of the cancer pa pediatric cancer patients are in the U.S. with eighty percent survival, or in Western countries. And, and 80% are in underdeveloped countries with 20% survival. So whatever we learn here may also be applicable uh, in, in you know, worldwide. Uh, so uh, I think that speaks to importance. And so I appreciate your, your call for young investigators to go into this sort of field and get the right training as, mm -hmm. they're, as they're developing their careers in order to be able to ans ask these kinds of questions. Yeah, we did. We were fortunately with some um, external funding from a philanthropic source, we were able to support a competitive application for young investigators who are interested and want to devote their career to disparities research and within the children's oncology group. And I, so I think that uh, working with our different committees and, and particularly people who are interested in these healthcare disparities um, uh, issues, I think we can support their early career development for people to to develop this as a, as a focus for their academic uh, careers. Doug, if you had to think of sort of some key messages on what we know right now about the state of uh, disparities and inequities, sort of key take-home messages for our audience in the state of our knowledge right now, what do you think those would be? Yeah, so maybe the first one is the call to arms. This is appalling. I mean, these data are simply appalling and we can't turn away. We can't say, well, that's too hard. I think that they're just appalling and they're pervasive. I mean, you can look at multiple different diseases. We see the same same problem. I think it's not good enough just to say there are differences we need to try to get to etiology and that's going to require us to have much more specific information. But I am optimistic that if we understand the etiology, we can develop interventions. And also, if I, again, take a, take a step back and not thinking about the individual clinical trials, but thinking about the population of children with cancer, if we're going to make a difference, uh, we, need to make, we need to address issues that are not just the next clinical trial with an intervention of a new drug or a new way of doing surgery, et cetera. We're going to have to look at these disparities in outcomes because we could develop the most effective treatment for cancer. But if we can't give it to all kids who could benefit from it, we're not going to see an improvement in outcome on a population basis. So um, I think we can't turn away. This is appalling. We need to address it. And I think the opportunities are myriad there to really start digging deep into how we can affect that change. And I want to turn it now to Tim for any additional comments or questions uh, as we move to close. Uh, I think just the one thing you said that, that really strikes me is that the differences can often exceed the differences of a new drug or a new combination or a new strategy. And so we're not just talking about subtleties here. And as, as you said, uh, and so this is really, really important. And that, that to me has been a little bit eye-opening for this, this conversation, because oftentimes we don't think that these disparities are that different or that impactful and, and, and the study that even people on trial, on the clinical trials, enrolled in the trials who are getting the best best of the best uh, that, that, that this is affecting. So uh, it really, I just want to reemphasize that point you made. And, and uh, this is an area I think that's certainly been way understudied and, and ignored too long and, and now coming to light. And so um, appreciate your here discussing it, that's all. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I think this is a really, as I said, this is not an area which I had spent my career. None of the papers that, <laughs> that I wrote either with you or with Brenda involved uh, disparities out, of outcome. But I think this is one of the most pressing issues for us to address as a community of pediatric oncologists and within the Children's Oncology Group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just want to thank you, uh, Doug, for really raising this issue and also the importance of the, the children's oncology group and its ability to, to address it. I think it we have to start addressing these issues to move forward in treating all children with cancer. And so I really have appreciated your insights and, and really highlighting this major issue uh, that I have to admit, I was struck by the enormity of the disparities. I, it was, it's impressive and it's concerning and it's a call to arms. So thank you. Um, and all looks like that's it for this week. And I really thank Dr. Doug Hawkins again for his leadership and for joining us uh, today to address this important topic of disparities in pediatric cancer. I also thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twibbo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.